Inside the Post-Dispatch. Welcome to Inside the Post-Dispatch. I'm Liz Miller. I'm Beth O'Malley. And we're excited today to be speaking with reporter Steph Kugeljohn, uh, who covers business for the paper. Steph wrote in a story for our Sunday paper that Clayton residents fear the county seat is losing what they love about it, mainly the small town feel of Clayton. Uh, there are several projects planned or already under construction worth nearly uh, $600 million, and that should add residents and a lot of foot traffic. And the city is hoping that that will expand the kind of crowds in Clayton beyond the normal business hours when there are people at the local businesses and working in the offices that are in that area. And there could be even more changes on the horizon. Calaris might be selling its uh, headquarter campus Mm -hmm. and the main county building may also go undergo some renovations or even be demolished. Steph, I have to say Clayton has never really struck me as a small town feel, but I've also never lived in Clayton. So yeah, and, and I would say that's the response I've gotten from a lot of people who are not Claytonians or Claytonites, I should have confirmed that during my story, <laughs> which they prefer. But for a lot of longtime residents, they do have that sense of feel. And it comes from the the small retail shops that you see in, in what's called downtown Clayton, the kind of business area of, you know, the, the, the buildings that are short and kind of give you this sense of quaintness. And mm-hmm. so they that's mm-hmm. what they're talking about when they miss, when they're going to lose out on that with some of these big office developments that come in and instead of those brick buildings now you have glass towers that really loom in the distance so that's what they're talking about this sort of they can walk to the pharmacy they can walk to get a newspaper a cup of coffee so that's what they're they're fearing a lot of these projects seem to have retail on the first floor and apartments above but the question is what will fill those retail spots yeah and these developers will say that they'll they'll let the market decide so whenever they are ready to to open um, that could be anywhere from some few months a year um, really depends on the retailer but it's whatever is i guess i don't want to say popular but whatever retailer thinks is going to fit and that mm-hmm. could easily change especially now with covid that could that could change within a couple months so they're very mum on what retailers they want but it just uh, they'll look to see what's missing and what retailers will step up to the plate to fill those holes. It's a little bit of both, right? Like yeah. Who they who has interest in the area and the spot as well yeah. as who they're marketing to, basically. Yeah, and and it's safe to say it's not going to be a big shopping mall. It's not going to be like a famous bar. You know, it, it's going to be the 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 sort of what we would consider like small shops that you can just walk in and and walk out. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. And uh, Steph, when we were chatting before we started recording, we were talking about, you know, maybe some of the ways that the Central West End has evolved and transformed over the past few years, some of the types of retail spots there. Um, and I think to your point, that's a good example. It's a lot of regionally owned, some locally owned businesses, mm-hmm. but bringing something else to the community, maybe if retail uh, and like shopping and retail had been falling off, there's more of that. Or maybe if, you know, there are these rest, these legacy restaurants that are moving out, new ones are taking those spots so just because they are these you know large developments doesn't mean that they won't necessarily partner uh with locally owned businesses you know managers owners uh to bring those kind of concepts to that space and i think the central lesson is a good example of that especially on maryland plaza you had the coplers reinvigorate that 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 spot and you could always argue that weston doesn't has never really fallen off, at least in recent years. But what they did is renovated a lot of the the retail there in Maryland Plaza by the Chase. Right. You have retailers that entered the market for the first time, like Suit Supply, um, which is an international national online uh, organization. You even had um, 
the the eyeglass uh, brand come in, and then also Kendra Scott. So we've got those are examples of those are bigger brands, obviously, but ones that were relatively new to the market or had little to no presence in St. Louis, and that's sort of what you could see happening in Clayton. It's similar markets, similar demographics. Uh, what you can expectations would probably be along those lines. Speaking of demographics, one of the things that struck me when I heard people talking about the small town feel was, you know, Clayton is pretty heavily owner occupied. A lot of people who live in Clayton own their own homes. There's not a whole lot of apartments in the area necessarily. So adding, I think it's almost 500 apartment spots mm-hmm. is going to really change some of the residents of, of Clayton. And that's what that's what city officials and that's what a lot of longtime residents want they want the they want the younger crowd the the sort of the crowd that maybe can't necessarily afford to own their own home or, or maybe don't want to or even baby boomers that are downsizing so they right. want it they want to market to a different group of people to really kind of help essentially the longevity of Clayton to really kind of I don't want to say diversify in the sense but just that's kind of what they want they they want that crowd that either doesn't or cannot right at this point own a home in in Clayton. Yeah. Well, and you know, that makes sense. I think there are younger people too, who, especially if they're not from St. Louis, or maybe they're moving here for a job, you know, Clayton is a center that could have the potential, right, to bring a lot of people from outside the area. And what better, you know, opportunity than to rent an apartment, maybe you're not trying to buy because you're just moving here for a job. And you want to get a feel for the area, um, but be able to walk to work in the morning. I'm guessing places like Centene, eventually, Mm -hmm. um, or Ernst & Young see a lot of potential in that kind of opportunity for their workers. Yeah, and there's uh, there's a couple office developments under construction now or in planning um, where some of the tenants are lined up and some aren't, but that's kind of the, the goal of, uh, developers call it like this live-work-play, which is a, a buzzword, but essentially it goes down to density and adds to density and what are the trends, what are people wanting, and a lot of people want that walkability. And so if you have a place that has a lot of companies, you know, like, like Centene, like Ernst & Young, um, the different law firms um, to have their to have an opportunity where their employees can live there and can walk to work. That would be a major recruiting tool and even a retention tool for for their employers. Yeah, absolutely. And to your point, who can grow hopefully not just with the companies, but for Clayton, right. with the community itself, right? Live, work, play. <laughs> it's like live, laugh, love. I well, I hope not. Um, if I see work. What was it? Work, live, play? Live, work, and play. (laughs) Live, work, play. Um, I would rather play, live, work, but maybe that's just me. Um, (laughs) uh, But no, just kidding. Uh, I used to work in Ladue in Colonial Marketplace, um, and that's basically the divider between Ladue and Clayton. Uh, And so it's really super walkable to downtown Clayton. And, you know, Clayton always that older kind of Clayton that we're talking about, maybe the one that current residents and um, business owners are a little bit lamenting the loss of, I think we've seen in other neighborhoods, like I lived in Maplewood in college, that's super walkable Mm -hmm. or bikeable. Uh, And, you know, there's, it's not just the businesses that are opening there, the way that it's changed, but it's also kind of an urban planning and having a bigger vision. And I know in your story that published recently, uh, you talked to, I believe it was an architect, uh, yeah, urban planner, an urban planner, and I think were they, I believe they were both urban planners. Yeah. Well, and I'd love yeah. to hear more about that because I feel like his quotes were really interesting about how it has to be this larger, thoughtful plan um, that doesn't just serve you know industry but serves communities. 
Yeah, I will say one of my favorite things of covering real estate and development are talking to the urban planners or the architects who have a really, the way they think about things is so different. So the two that I talked to, John Hole and uh, Linda Samuels, both are urban planners. Uh, it's that I mean that comes down to once the city has a plan it knows where it's going and therefore can decide what type of development it wants and can also help foster those environments and that could be anywhere from incentives or it could just be from things like zoning or even targeting certain companies or certain developers to come to their area and having a plan can really decide where your city goes and it can give it also I mean that could help with branding. It could help with attracting residents. You know, like, this is what I can expect from this city and having a plan like that works. So John had a really great quote that I love is that every city has a soul and it you need to find your own soul and what that is and really build upon that. So he talked a lot about, uh, and Linda too, about authenticity and and how cities, especially older cities and municipalities in, in the St. Louis area can build upon their history and how that can really be an advantage for them and it's uh but it all comes down to planning and really where the city wants to go and and that can obviously be a big task for some for some folks yeah definitely especially in an area like st louis county where you have portions of south county for example afton isn't its own municipality it's just a census designated spot so you have i think an afton business group that says we want to create more of our own downtown And now you have Clayton, which has a downtown saying we want to we want to make sure we know what type of downtown we're moving toward. Right. So it seems like the fragmentation, again, I feel like we've talked about fragmentation in every podcast. We probably will. (laughs) But (laughs) that's how you know it's a podcast about St. Louis and things happening here. Exactly. Is that something that Clayton looks at or other municipalities as a disadvantage in in that right next to Clayton, there's U-City and right next to U-City is Ladue and other areas that some some people don't see big differences in. I don't know if they would see that as an opportunity or a challenge either way. They're, each municipality is trying to find its footing and to uh, find its own way to survive. And, and certainly we've seen that with competition for big, big companies. Like, I mean, we there's so many stories of Walmart and incentives and that mm-hmm. sort of thing. And that's when we get into the fragmentation of of the region and there is a broader effort to not have that as much but some of the municipalities municipalities will still have that competition i think the focus is and especially for clayton is what can they do they have a lot of strengths so what can they do to build upon those strengths while also serving their residents as well definitely i mean when you think of a growing community or at least a vital community in st louis county clayton is first in mind it has it's the county seat it has that advantage of the large companies that are there beyond just the main ones Ernst and Young and Centene and Calaris you've got others as well and the draw of all the attorneys going to the courthouse things like that yeah and that's that's obviously a major bonus for them is that to have that but then you also have to serve the residents and depending on which resident you talk to you know that they that hasn't always been the case where mm. where you're not necessarily um, disregarding residents, but maybe not taking in consideration more of their desires. Now what you're seeing is this momentum really across the country of creating towns that people feel good about, that want to live in, that it's not just get in my car, go to work, come home and just stay in my house. People really want a neighborhood. They want to feel like they're a part of something, a community sense and, and how you create that you can easily do that through through the built environment and just but making sure 
the built environment is what serves your residents as well as visitors, whatever companies you have there. It's, it's yeah, probably easier said than done. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, well, and I think, you know, it's, it's really nice to hear that walkability, that that is a piece that it, that is crucial because I think that is, to Beth's point earlier, a piece that has been historically missing in a lot of St. Louis County municipalities. I grew up in South County, so I will second that. You, I did too, yeah. It's, it's very difficult to walk, yep. uh, you know, Car-centric. many places. Yeah. Uh, I also wonder if it's an opportunity to diversify, and this is something, you know, who can, who can say, but I hope, um, and I'm sure for urban planners, that perhaps that is a hope as well, to diversify the types of businesses, to create a little bit more economic equity for residents. You know, there are going to be apartments, so maybe the barrier to entry, although I'm sure the rent will not be insignificant, um, is a little bit lower. So people who are maybe younger, who don't make as much money, could live in Clayton, but then what kind of businesses will pop up around them that they will be able to afford or be interested in what was it um life live work play yeah live work play mm-hmm. you know and that are a little, maybe a little bit less moneyed or well healed that itself also feels like a transition happening right now in Clayton possibly yeah and, and John Hull the urban planner I talked to um you know he put it he put it really simply it's it's an art to create the right mix um and cities get it wrong a lot there's some that get it right um, it's a really difficult challenge because you're also dealing with factors that governments can't control. The mayor, Michelle Harris, said, you know, we can't control the market. We, as, as unfortunate it is to lose businesses like World News, there's, she says there's little that they can do to really kind of help that or slow that or stop that. So the mix then comes down to what, what role government can play in that. And obviously that, com- that can come down to ph- philosophical differences and then it also comes down to developers and retailers and what concessions they want to make or how they're able to kind of um, have it all come together and sometimes it takes creative thinking and sometimes the market isn't there to to kind of service everyone but um, I mean obviously at the end of the day developers retailers everyone is profit driven but there are um, there are ways to make it more impactful for the community as well. Yeah, definitely. To move on to another story that touches on the live, work, play motto that we've now all adopted. <laughs> um, you wrote about how Ernst & Young and some other businesses, not just ones in Clayton, are trying to focus on getting their employees back into the office after the pandemic now that um, hopefully most people are vaccinated and able to get back together in offices. And as someone who works for a newspaper where we are accustomed to pinching pennies, a lot of those perks sounded really nice. Free meals sounds great. Yeah, whenever whenever I go to someone's office, uh, I can see just how much sacrifice I've made being a, <laughs> being a reporter and just uh, what they have. Um, but it all goes down to amenities. So before before the pandemic, that was certainly a competition for workers. Mm-hmm. What amenities can I offer that'll attract and retain employees? And now it's not only just that, but also how do I get my employees back in the office? And so you have companies like Ernst & Young that are saying, well, one of our strengths is our mentoring. They have a lot of young workers. In order to get them back in the office, you know, they have the the sort of mental, the mentoring aspect of it. And that's mm-hmm. one way that they're trying to get employees back in is like, you can have a better relationship with your mentee, mentor, better collaboration, you can have FaceTime with mm-hmm. the boss more if you're in the office versus at home, and certainly they have work from home. And so that's that's the struggle, challenge businesses face now is not only having amenities like 
either a nice coffee bar, a gym. Ooh, um, coffee bar. There's there's <laughs> even some are even doing things like a golf simulator. Just other things that really can entice workers to come and want to come into work too. Right, right. I think we've seen during the pandemic just how we're able to change and adapt and now it's now it's more of how can we get people to want to come into work and that want to be here yeah it's it's funny that you mentioned the the free food beth um well one i feel like you know in newsrooms so we we'll have like newsroom pizza but that is so legend that i feel like we're just looking for excuses for newsroom pizza at this point right like it doesn't have to be election night anymore <laughs> I, I made us get pizza for the wild card game i was like where's our wild card pizza because on election night you get election night pizza <laughs> That you then eat cold at two in the morning while you're finishing up all your work and right, just a grease covered keyboard. Yeah, um, it's glamorous. Uh, but uh, I was also going to say it's it's uh, something that before the pandemic, you know, I used to think that I, same, same. I was like, that is so cool that places get free food because we get you know again newsroom pizza twice a year or something. Um, but I had a friend who who works for an organization who they have a cafeteria, a free f- meal, three meals a day. And she was saying, you know, yes, the first few weeks when I started, again, this is pre-pandemic, it was awesome. But it started to feel more and more like it was a way for the company to keep us on site. Well, and I was so, going to say that, yeah, to get more production without paying as much. Yeah. yeah. And so th- there was enough feedback around, this is so funny to me, the free food, about how it felt a little passive aggressive of like, oh, but now is it weird if I take my lunch? And is it weird if I take this food and leave the building with it? Because I just need the mental break. Uh, and so they started offering stipends. So you could either do mm-hmm. the free food or the stipend. And I was like, how many people immediately never ate the cafeteria food again? You know. Um, so I do think there is something to that where your amenities and incentives need to be done in a thoughtful and intentional way so that employees truly feel that you're trying to meet them halfway and not maybe trying to keep them on site to keep them closer to their desks. Uh, And, you know, again, that's the very opposite of having flexibility with work from home. Yeah. And I think, I mean, flexibility too, you'll have some of these companies say that that has to be part of what they offer to employees, that it's now almost a given to allow at least one day to work from home or or be remote but this sort of um amenities war is yeah you want things that people will want so free food that that high doesn't last as long and and it's probably not as enticing to as more employees as you know what we think as journalists like we'll We'll take free user and pizza. <laughs> yeah, we're a bad like base for this. Uh, but for you know, but so the, I think that's why these these companies and certainly property owners are looking to things that they can replicate that you can't get elsewhere. So obviously anyone can get a sandwich from anywhere, but can you really have this roof tech this rooftop bar or a place to mingle where you have these great views of the city and it's just you know the weather's getting nice now and we have like a fun outing with this with this golf simulator or whatever it is just kind of replicating experiences and obviously this focus on experiences um, a movement maybe I don't know if that's the right word that's happening where that's really what the younger workforce especially wants our experiences rather than things or items yeah and I think that team bonding in a real way is probably a piece of that too you know you mentioned earlier that 
companies like Ernst & Young value the in-person mentorship that they've had over the years and that that was probably really challenging to reproduce during mm-hmm. the pandemic. So I'd imagine that these other things that feel more about true team building that make you feel more connected to your coworkers and know right. them better makes you want to come into work because right. these are people you you know you want to spend more time with, you want to get to know better. Uh, and so not just giving th- free things necessarily, but truly making it a culture that people want to work in feels pretty critical. Sure. And and I also will say there not every company is looking towards this. There are some companies that are totally fine with working remote and now see how much money can I save by not paying rent and by not paying for parking or having my employees come in. And so there's certainly two schools of thought. And I don't think certainly no one knows, obviously, where the office market will go or how people will work. But I think now what we're seeing is it's not just one way of thinking. And maybe that's just the new climate that we're in is it's going to be different for every company or every industry. And it's going to be another part of company culture and right. company philosophy. Right. And we more, like more options for employees. In, right? Yeah. Yeah. Something I kept thinking about thinking about reading your story that published last month, I think in late February, uh, was how much we didn't, you know, before the pandemic, so many people, myself included, had never worked from home. Mm-hmm. So you had no base to compare it to. You had nothing. I never thought about making lunch at home because that was never going to happen. Uh, and so when you don't know what the alternative could be or what you might be giving up, you just don't care. Uh, so I do wonder how much of it is also employers having to level set with their staffs about here is truly the value of having you in the office three days a week, two days a week, maybe five days a week um, versus you know what maybe people found out of surprise or necessity during the pandemic. Yeah, and I think that'll be the struggle of employers and obviously not every employee is going to bite or or you know be willing to hear that argument. So I think I think we'll see and what I've heard too from um just talking to real estate brokers is it's for St. Louis especially it's going to take the next several years, 5 years to really see how it all plays out and who the winners and losers are in this sort of pandemic world that we're And that's also kind of talking about a a certain group of mainly white collar workers who can't right. work from home yes. there are other people yeah. who must work right in person or in their trucks or um with patients for example that type of thing and they i think are, are even those people are experiencing this kind of exhaustion right. through the pandemic um, in the medical field i've been hearing a lot about people getting you know they're exhausted they're tired and they are um, maybe are not seeing the perks from their bosses that they were hoping right. to and I'm thinking, too, it reminds me of, um, you know, we have NGA coming in, the geospatial agency. Geospatial is one industry that you, it's very difficult to work remote mm-hmm. with security concerns. And so, but I think um, without being an expert and without going too much into the industry, I think their advantage is that they're an exciting field. There's other value mm-hmm. propositions that they can offer to employees that maybe other industries can't offer, whether that's whatever um, you know job or assignment that you're working on, or your your connection to to the federal government. Um, there are going to be some industries that have natural pluses and obviously natural minuses that other industries. It's just it's not going to be a one size fit all. Whereas right. maybe before it just it would be unthinkable to have people have employees demand to work from home before. <laughs> yeah, it was but now they have that power. It was unthinkable in the newsroom. I mean, people just didn't really work from home. Right, and we're already like a naturally mobile group anyway like we have our laptops and could essentially work from anywhere but we didn't yeah but we didn't and now it's like 
okay now it makes sense yeah that's what i kind of meant is i feel like so many industries including ours kind of got cracked open and what never had seemed had never been the thought i don't know that i'd ever once even thought to myself i'd love to work from home today because it had never been an option right uh and to you know the points that you're both bringing up very valid ones there are so many industries that don't have that luxury i have you know i have a i'm sure i'm sure as we all do good friends who are teachers, who are doctors, nurses, and they don't have that option. Or if they had it briefly, they no longer do right, for or various reasons. Right, you're in the service industry where it's just, yeah, yeah. And it's, I think, brought a renewed focus on wages. I mean, that we, we think of, um, you know, how hard it is for like the food service industry to find waiters or workers. And certainly some of that comes from people maybe not wanting to do that job for as little as pay and they found something else We've got, you know, a lot of warehouses, a lot of, you know, like the Amazons in our in our area. You could essentially, you know, the starting pay is obviously over $11, $15, depends what company you work for. So you can do that. You work in a warehouse. You don't have to do customer service, essentially. Like, you're not face-to-face with anyone. You're making more money with essentially less negative aspects of maybe dealing with cranky customers or whatever. I mean, it, it would make sense. I mean, I would totally take that warehouse job over, you know, flipping burgers and with essentially the same qualifications of, of for both. So I think that'll be that's what I'm interested to see is how people address those challenges when when it's something as obvious as the job's not great or the wages aren't great and how we're going to somehow figure that out. Or maybe we just don't have as many options in the future, too. I think we were all very spoiled of having a Starbucks in every corner <laughs> Now that might not be a possibility with with workers. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, something we were chatting about again before we started recording that uh, I thought, you know, maybe we'll circle back to is I don't know if in writing the story that you published last month, you came across this at all, but it's been really interesting to me to see how much it seems that workers kind of pushing back against coming back to the office hasn't maybe fallen along the generational lines that one would suspect it would. So if the idea is that younger people, Gen Z, millennials would be leading that charge, that it's actually workers of all ages who have maybe found, you know, some balance and flexibility with hybrid or work from home schedules. Yeah, I think when I do my interviews, I think you'll hear these companies say, They'll put that impetus more on the younger employees, whether it's millennials or Gen Z, because I think that's the group that they're focused on of keeping and what they hope will grow the company. But, um, you know, just just yesterday, you know, hearing a person who she was in her 50s just uh, complaining about her job, forcing people now to come back to work. And she said, I've worked from home for over a year now. I don't want to go back. And. And I think it's it's something where it's not a generational divide, but that's going to be the focus for companies because I think mm-hmm. what they're thinking of are employees that they can keep long term. But um, I would say as is a misnomer. I mean, we're not someone who's like twenty five is not going to be anyone who's different from from fifty five in terms of what they want out of. I think it will just come down to what people are used to. Maybe if you're older, you're used to coming into the office and that's where you're comfortable with. But it's, yeah, it's not going to, I don't think it's going to fall on generational lines. Yeah, but it, it kind of, you know, sparks some interesting questions because that 25-year-old might say, you know what, I'll just find another job. I'm going to quit. Whereas a 55-year-old might feel like, well, I only have 10 years left before I want to retire. So is this really the time to make a move? Right, so yeah. do I feel kind of forced into a decision um, because of my age, honestly, that yeah. someone, you know, again, 20, 30 years younger might not feel that way about? I don't know. 
Yeah, it's all about flexibility on everybody's part, you know, the employee to the manager to the company. And as we all know, some some people are very flexible and some people aren't. <laughs> some <laughs> yeah. companies are very flexible and some companies aren't. And I will say that working from home taught me the value of a good chair because I was sitting in a chair that was not a good chair for quite a while. And then it literally <laughs> broke <laughs> underneath me. <laughs> Oh, didn't you say it's a wooden chair? It was Beth. a wooden chair that I had a pillow on. <laughs> and now I have like an actual office chair that I still have a pillow on. Um, one of my favorite things of working from home when everyone was working from home was seeing where people zoomed in from, like mm. where they decided <laughs> to set up their office. And I had one source um, who probably won't listen to this podcast, but maybe they will, um, who zoomed in from their master bathroom and that was because that was the quietest place in their house because okay, they were sense. with their spouse and their children and they obviously were not using the facilities but i just that was probably the most unique spot and then also hearing people's dogs and the sort of acceptance that people have a life out of work where maybe we wouldn't have really paid attention to that and now we're kind of forced to and i don't know i, I like that sort of seeing how people live and how they dealt with that especially because i don't know a lot of people were dealing with each other just over the phone or through email. Right. And suddenly you're doing Zooms and, hey, there you are. <laughs> I would wave frantically at the beginning and end of every meeting for some reason. Like, Oh, I did that to like oh, a yeah. Muppet. Like, yeah. you know, just... Hi, everybody. I'm so glad <laughs> Right. To and you have you. to introduce your pet or... Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But no, I think that's a gr- good point. Again, it just gets back to maybe culture and at work and seeing each other as people, not coworkers, and understanding that everyone kind of going through something different and has a life outside of work yeah uh gives you more empathy i think for your coworkers and more flexibility maybe in your in the way you approach your own work it almost leveled the playing field too as me talking to people that are company leaders and um instead of going to their boardroom to talk now i had to talk to them while they're sitting in their living room and which i don't know just yeah yeah it's kind of like an equalizer Unless yeah. their living room is significantly nicer than yours. And I right. I will say, I will say the person I interviewed, their master bathroom was probably bigger than like my kitchen, but um, yeah. That's funny. It was a little glimpse into their life. What's the Twitter account? Rate my background. Oh, the room raider. Yeah. Room raider. That's yeah. Right. Iconic. Well, thank you so much for joining yeah, us. Thank we you. really appreciate it. And I'm sure we'll talk to you again in the future. Yeah. Thanks so much, Steph. Thank you. Moving from real estate to police officers. I thought the story would have died by now, to be honest, but Alderman Joe Vaccaro, who represents the 23rd Ward, was pulled over by a police officer on Interstate 44 two weeks ago now. Yeah, I think it was a couple weeks ago. Yeah. Um, He talked about this uh, incident of being pulled over and made some statements that really upset some people. Uh, He basically said that the police officer wasn't wearing a mask, was coughing, um, and was also being rude. His direct quote is, my only complaint was the lack of a mask and him being rude. Bacaro gets pulled over and the tape of the interaction starts with the officer getting out of his car and telling Joe Bacaro to get back into his car. And I have to ask you, Liz, (laughs) I think we both agree on this. Why do you get out of your car on Interstate 44 when someone pulls you over? I have never once in my life been pulled over and thought the thing I should be doing now is exiting the vehicle. I feel like that is driver's ed 101. You stay in the vehicle. You don't make any quick movements. You wait for the officer to approach you with your window down. And then they, you know, signal, I need your license. I need your insurance. That's when you get those things. Uh, I was always taught to 
you know, again, not reach for anything because that could be seen as a sign of aggression. They don't know what you're doing. Right. Uh, and, and so officer- for someone who's a public, you know, in a public safety role yes. uh, for the board of aldermen to to act that way, you can't say that he didn't know better. So we're going to listen to just the first part of the interaction. Back in your car. Get back in your car. Get back in your car. Have a seat. Get back in your car. Have a get in your car. Never get out your car. Never get out your car. That's how you get yourself killed. No, I don't want to get myself. License registration, please. I was in a rush. Okay, you never get out the car. Okay. You're going 76 and a 60. Yes, sir. It's okay. Do you have insurance on a vehicle? Okay. Do you have insurance on a vehicle? Yes, sir. You never get out the car. It makes it dangerous for the both of us. Some people don't know. Yes, sir. That's the reason why we on these highways now. Okay. Look for it. You can hear the officer telling Joe Vaccaro that's how people die. Police stops on the interstate are incredibly dangerous. Mm-hmm. It is literally how people die, not just the police officers, but the people who are being pulled over, especially if you get out of your car. I, I frankly, if the cop had been rude, I don't know that I can blame him very much because. Joe Vaccaro yeah. got out of his car. I, I, this just, I can't get over this fact. And there's so much else about this. Yeah. So, well, and he was, you know, you're, when you're speeding, I think it was like 16 over or something. And now I'm a lead foot. I, one of our columnists, Tony Messenger, has written quite a lot about this, two columns so far. And um, he says he's also a lead foot. So I can empathize with someone who maybe isn't always going the speed limit. Yeah. But I also, again, because of that, know that when I get pulled over, you know, I need to uh, follow that kind of like I just walked through earlier rule book of what you're supposed to do because you are going 16 over. Cops don't know where you're coming from or what you're doing. So and, and he knew he was speeding. He tells the cop I was on my way to a meeting. The the audio on the video that we have is uh, you know there's cars zipping by cuz again they're on the interstate. I know I keep saying that. I'm sorry. Um <laughs> it's that it's just that troubling. <laughs> it, it really is that troubling to me. Uh, and that he would then complain about the treatment that he got and what was in all, I believe, a 10 minute stop, which is, yeah. I mean, when I get have gotten pulled over in the past, and it doesn't happen to me often, knock on wood. Oh, now we're bragging, huh? Yeah, we are. <laughs> no, I, I'm a, um, let's move on. So <laughs> when I've gotten pulled over in the past, it definitely feels like longer than 10 minutes. And I don't know how quickly... It really was in the past for me, but it didn't feel like 10 minutes. It felt like longer. And Joe Vaccaro was like, well, he was rude to me. And the Joe Vaccaro wasn't able to produce his proof of insurance. It was on his phone. But on the time that he's getting out of the car and wandering around the side of the interstate, maybe he could have pulled up his insurance on his phone. Yeah. And the police officer tells him repeatedly, you take that ticket to court and they will drop it for you. Mm-hmm. And I know that that's an inconvenience, but Joe Vaccaro is the chair of the um, Public Safety Committee. 
he should know how this process works and he should know that a police officer once they print up that ticket they can't just tear it up on the side of the road and that's what he was asking him to do that's not a possibility in this case and joe vaccaro beside being the chair of this public safety committee he has a son who's a city police homicide detective had to have worked his way up in some department if not the city department and also a daughter who's a 911 dispatcher this is a man who should know public safety and the fact that he has this complaint is troubling and that's pointed out by a group of 17 aldermen who have called for him to step down from this position writing that not only was his description of the stop inaccurate but that they're troubled by the power dynamics at play yeah absolutely well it makes you wonder you know people who like joe vaccaro to your point has been historically um i would say it's not out of line to say a supporter of police he has Mm -hmm. been pro-police and it makes me wonder you know officers in the line of of duty what this officer was doing i think was pretty by the book uh i wouldn't say he was warm but i wouldn't say he was rude and if someone who's not an alderman who doesn't have a position um were to you know, give a cop this response, getting out of their vehicle, asking them to tear up a ticket. Mm -hmm. I have to imagine if it hadn't been Joe Vaccaro, it would have been Joe Vaccaro coming to that police officer's defense. So it's just kind of a weird situation to be in that maybe when it's politically advantageous or helpful, Joe Vaccaro is very pro-police. But when he maybe doesn't realize he's being filmed, uh, yelling at an officer for doing his job, all of a sudden the officer is rude. It's a really interesting situation. And like I said, I I honestly didn't think the story had legs, but um, both police unions, the historically black police union and the one that is uh, kind of more traditionally a white police union have come out in opposition to this. And as Tony Messenger writes, when, when both of those groups agree, you know you have a problem. Yeah. Well, and I think, too, you know, something that we maybe didn't mention at the top is that Vaccaro had his story, which is the story that was picked up by media first. Right. And then the body cam footage was released several days, maybe a week later, and um, you know, certainly told a very different story. And Tony Messenger uh, for The Post covered that on March 5th and then again on March 15th. And as you said, that most recent column covers that the it's not a good sign when both police unions in town, which exist because of um, a lack of support for black officers historically within the department, uh, they uh, they align on this. They both have come out and said that Joe Vaccaro was overreaching uh, and that he should resign. Right. So I think the only question from here is what's going to happen next? Um, will Joe Vaccaro resign? Will he stay in office and continue to face these criticisms? We'll just have to see. Yeah. And in the meantime, I'm going to try not to speed. No promises. (laughs) No no promises. (laughs) All right, everyone. uh, Drive safely. And as always, thank you for listening. Oh, thank you so much. Have a good one. See you next week.